Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161P28, Christian Reconstruction, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 115, February 11, 1986. This evening, I have with me two guests that we're very happy to have with us on an easy chair, Dennis Peacock and Bob Mumford. And we are going to deal with Christian Reconstruction in this session. As a matter of fact, we are together for a planning session all day tomorrow on ways of extending the ministry of Christ to all the world. Dennis, Bob, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Dennis? I'm very uh, glad to be with you, Dr. Rushton. Uh, Rush, please. Okay. Will you tell our listeners something about yourself and your background? Okay. Um, <clears throat> very briefly, um, I was born in Seattle and uh, had an encounter with the Lord when I was a young boy um, and yet uh, had difficulties walking consistently in the faith because I had a lot of pressure put on me. I was an athlete and of course you know the pressures of being an athlete in this culture were fairly severe. Uh, graduated from high school in Seattle and came down to the University of California at Berkeley in 1961 on, uh, on an athletic scholarship, um, got injured in 1962, and uh, went through the whole Berkeley scene from 1962 to uh, into the latter part of 1967. <clears throat> excuse me, which in my case in, involved and included uh, uh, political activism. I was very much involved in the civil rights movement and uh, w became a Marxist, uh, was a Trotskyite uh, for several years, and uh, got out of Western philosophy and went into Eastern philosophy for a couple of years, uh, worked as a speechwriter in San Francisco for uh, the AFL-CIO state offices, and uh, in 1967, uh, at a point of real desperation in my life, I had a, an encounter with Jesus Christ, which, of course, totally turned my world and my life around. Um, <clears throat> I began to um, uh, try and find a way into the church, which we may come back to later in this conversation. Because of my philosophical training, it was very difficult for me to find my way into uh, the organized church because of uh, the training and, the, quite frankly, the worldview that I developed while I was, uh, was a student at Berkeley, I couldn't find holistic Christian thinkers or a, a kind of holistic view of reality. So essentially what happened is myself and a number of, of other people began holding Bible studies, and those Bible studies uh, uh, grew into hundreds of people, and we ended up starting a network of churches. And uh, I've been in the ministry uh, full-time since 1972 and uh, counted a real privilege to uh, have had the Lord bring our lives into contact and through exposure to your writing and 
I'm excited about what the Lord has for us in the future. Thank you, Dennis. And now, Bob, I don't think there are many people listening who are not familiar with the name of Bob Mumford, but uh, in your own words, tell us a little bit about your background and experience. Thank you, Rush. <clears throat> I'm, um, my own early experience was similar to Dennis in the fact that I had an encounter with the Lord at age 12, and um, it was very problematic. And um, in the absence of any kind of follow-up or consistent uh, Christian testimony or teaching within the home, I uh, soon fell away from the Lord and um, walked for 12 years in a very um, complicated kind of an existence because once you have known the Lord and are not walking with him, I, I often say it's probably the most miserable form of human existence. Uh, at age 24, from age 12 to 24, I was still in the Navy, came home on leave, and then uh, while home on leave had a, a very um, impacting encounter with the risen Lord, went back to the ship, um, had the joy of leading quite a few of those men to the Lord on the ship, felt strongly the call of God, and um, came out actually came out of the Navy. I was going to stay in the military, which I really enjoyed, to um, to get a degree and go back as a military chaplain. I wanted, I saw that as a very real mission field. Um, came out, of course, went to school, on to seminary, and have been since then a Bible teacher for the most part. I, I have pastored on occasion, but for the most part I have been a seminar, leadership kind of a Bible teacher, um, both here and in many nations. And um, very recently, um, been impacted by the climate change, by what we see happening, and what we see needing to happen in the church. So it's a joy to be part of the uh, Easy Chair tonight. Thank you. Uh, Dennis, you said something about problems with the church. Let me tell you uh, my own experience there. I was struggling against going into the ministry for a long time. My father was a minister. As a matter of fact, uh, the clergy in my family form an unbroken line back to the early 300s of the Christian era. And yet I knew the church since my father was a minister. I knew the problems of the ministry and the weakness of the church. And something my father told me once had a powerful impact on me. He said, there is nothing in the world that is more wonderful than a church because it is the body of Christ. And nothing in the world that is at times more repulsive than the church because it is also the body of men. There are two sides to it. And he said, one will cause you joy and the other grief. 
And that's very true. And we see that in what comes out of the church in the way of earth-shattering things. And what comes out of the church often in the way of frustrating people and hindering their growth. And the way of pettiness of backbiting. And that sort of thing has taken place from the beginnings of the church's history. When we consider how much Paul suffered at the hands of churchmen in his day, in one church after another, members who were sinners challenging his credentials, criticizing him, making fun of him, you realize the church has had its share of problems. But it's not the problems we want to deal with tonight. It's the opportunities and the duties. I think I can introduce that subject best by reading from a little book published in 1977. Thy Kingdom Come by Ern Baxter. And in it there is this passage. I quote, I believe that in this hour God is bringing into a focus a fact that has been distorted for many, many years. And that is, God's purpose is not to redeem a bunch of people to sit at a bus stop and wait for the bus to come along to get them out of the world's mess. Rather, God has redeemed them and cleaned them and put himself into them that he may send them back in to clean up the mess and be the salt of the earth and the light of the world so that with the power of the gospel they may vindicate God's purpose in the death and resurrection of his son, unquote. And to read just another passage from Ern Baxter's Thy Kingdom Come, and I didn't know I was using his title when I wrote my book, uh, uh, Thy Kingdom Come, which perhaps was published before, I don't recall. <laughs> At any rate, to quote Ern Baxter again, but Jesus declared, now I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. For years we have interpreted this negatively. We've said I'm in the church and thank God the devil can't get at me. The gates of hell cannot prevail. So we have huddled together feeling protected by that word of the Lord. I don't think that's primarily what he meant. Personally, I've never been attacked by a gate. I've never had a gate jump off its hinges and chase me down the street. So what is our Lord saying by this? He's saying, I am God's ultimate purpose. There is nothing beyond me. There is nothing after me. I have come to do God's ultimate thing. I will build a congregation that will succeed. They'll kick the gates of hell in. Unquote. Praise God. 
<laughs> I like that. Well, that's our calling, to kick the gates of hell in. And towards that end, we've already been active, haven't we, Dennis, in organizing groups to think about Christian action realistically in one sphere after another to recognize that the crown rights of Christ our Lord include his crown rights over every civil government beginning with the United States as far as we're concerned. Mm -hmm. Rush, can I just pop in here for for a minute? Um, A number of things that you've already shared have brought several things to my attention. Um, at the risk of sounding like a, some kind of an admiration society here, I, I think the work that you in particular and, and some others have done uh, is so critical to uh, the body of Christ really accepting its responsibility. Um, <clears throat> as I shared, you know, my background as a philosophy student, one of the things that was very, very hard for me to understand in the church was that um, until I ran into your work, I was not able to find anybody that was writing about the church from a, uh, what we call in philosophy, a teleological point of view. That is, looking at the job that the church is supposed to accomplish in history. All that I was exposed to in my early early walk with the Lord um, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, primarily focused on the position that Christ was going to save us and get us out of this mess, as Ern Baxter uh, alludes to in his book, uh, which didn't square with the kinds of experiences that I'd had even as a revolutionary at Berkeley. I think the thing that has been most difficult for me as a Christian to countenance has been the fact that there uh, until the last few years, seemingly was not only so few Christians with an overview of what God wants to do in history, but uh, related to that is so few Christians with the guts to put their lives on the line to really stand for what they believed. Uh, and, and I say stand not in the defiant sense of the world is not going to change my theology, but stand in an aggressive sense as in, I'm coming after those gates and nothing is going to stop me. So those are things that, uh, you know, maybe we'll come back to some of that, but those are the things that have really challenged me and that I'm so excited that I see going on in the body of Christ right now is you've got thousands and tens of thousands of people beginning to come out of their slumber and see that God has an overall job for the church to do on the earth and the, the clearer their vision becomes on that job and the nature of the kingdom of God, the more fortitude, the more uh, conviction they have to be willing to be self-sacrificial uh, in that cause. And that's what, that's what energizes me and excites me, is I want to see the people of God called up to the vision of the kingdom of God and the work of God in such a way that the backbiting and so many of the nonsensical things that have gone on in the church because the church has been self-centered and, and anemic in its vision. See, I believe God will wash those things out of the church once the church begins to really see its job. Yes. Well, see, for me, 
um, I come at it from not from a philosophical point of view. I come at it from a, what would be a biblicist. Um, I come out of a pietistic, uh, Schofieldian uh, world. I went to Bible college. I took the the um, teaching at face value, basically without re-examining re-examining it. I think that the most critical issue today is expectancy. It's not that many of the people who are or were in a place such as I, they believe that, but they don't expect it. They don't expect God to do anything in the time-space world. (laughs) And, um, you know, if somehow we could handle the whole business of expecting Christ's lordship to be practical, you know, demonstrable, uh, functional in, in present life. And when it comes, a marvelous thing happens uh, to any church at the same time. All, a lot of the backbiting and uh, the ugliness and the things that we talk about, some of that is from... Um, is from raising up the church as an army and then not marching it. Mm-hmm. So then the army shoots itself. <laughs> yes. I mean, it really does. Yeah. It, it, it turns in on itself because there is no clear goal for the church to move toward. Exactly. You know, Bob, I've often used uh, that uh, point with regard to an army that does nothing uh, by citing General McClellan, the Union General of the Civil War. He was loved by the army because he never took them into battle. He avoided it on every occasion. Uh, very few men in history have been better at drilling an army than McClellan. His uh, troops were crackerjacks in formation and on drill and on parade, but he could not bear to take them into battle and to muss them up. Mm. So every time there was a threat of an engagement, he used every excuse to duck it. He would uh, manufacture statistics claiming that the Confederate forces outnumbered him two or three times. When the reverse was true, the only time he got into battle, it was by accident. He was very popular. In fact, he ran against uh, Lincoln, and the war was prolonged because Lincoln had trouble uh, getting him out. He was too popular. But here was a man who acted as though the uh, purpose of an army was simply to drill, not to fight. And there are all too many uh, churches who feel that the be-all and end-all of a church is to be organized as a church and have everything in neat apple pie order, not to be a barracks room, a training ground for action in the world. Can I just push up there and say that, you know, Bob who's been a a leader much longer than I have in the church Um, and we we spent a lot of time talking about these things 
I really wonder what the church, what, what our vision of the church is going to look like even ten years from now. I've got very strong suspicions that uh, it's going to be radically different. I, I think one of the things that we've experienced in the last ten years is we're convinced that the church is no longer a building. And, of course, most Christians are, are and I'm not trying to be critical, I'm just trying to tell it like it is, most Christians still think of the church as a building. And then you've got a group that comes out of that mentality, and then they think the church is a meeting. You know, that if you get the saints together, you're going to have church. But I, I would uh, suspect, and I'm coming to, to believe this with some de degree of conviction, that the church is the place where God wants to take a stand on the earth. That the church is to be a platform upon which uh, the gospel can be worked out by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, through the lives of believers. And that the church is in fact um, a launching pad for the work of God. It's not only not a building, it's not a meeting, it's a launching pad. It's a place where God is able to, through his people, demonstrate the work that he wants to do on the earth. Yes. The, um, for me, there's a... Um, uh, I come back to this word expectancy as we touch this thing with McClellan and, and um, what is the church. Um, I, it seems to me that the Bible is very clear that there are three specific realms that must be engaged. That is, the religious or the spiritual, the, the social or the governmental, and the economic. Now, for whatever reason, the church has yielded its authority, its sphere, its answers, in the, in the social and the economic, the church has rolled over and played dead. Now, I think it needs to be clear to our listeners, to every pastor, to every Christian everywhere, that since we have surrendered answers in those realms, that those who have now taken the leadership are not going to roll over when we try to speak clear biblical answers to the sphere of, of you cannot read the Bible and, and not understand the, the reality of social political answers that, that are, are found in the scriptures. The same is true with economic answers. It's, a, it's a frightening to see how much the Bible says about clear biblical answers in economic realms so that spiritually we expect answers but economically and politically the church it, it, the, the church doesn't expect answers and consequently you know from my view they don't see them when they read the bible consequently this present um, emphasis is stirring up a, a lot of excitement among many leaders. I'd like to pick up on something that each of you said. Expectancy, Bob, you spoke about that. And Dennis, you spoke about the philosophical tradition. 
Well, the modern age began with the humanists looking forward to a heaven on earth that they were going to build. But little by little, philosophically, they destroyed the reality of their hope. They destroyed the uh, reality of a a universe. Uh, The tradition from Descartes through Barclay to Hume uh, ended up denying the reality of a physical world, Mm -hmm. of anything except I think, therefore I am. And after Kant, the whole world was reduced to the subjective experience of man. No reality. Man was his own universe. And little by little, the belief in progress itself, in any hope for man, any future, disappeared. Mm -hmm. So expectancy is gone on the part of the humanists of anything except disaster. So we're in the last days of humanistic statism. We're going to see in the next few years the disaster that humanism is increase and the expectancy they have now is of disaster, of catastrophe. Well, the Christian community cannot be a part of that. They have to revive their expectancy of victory in Christ, and they will command the future. And there's no other way. I recall in the late 60s meeting with one of the most important men in America who for some reason or other wanted me to go to work for him for a while for a job that I felt was useless, although I felt that he considered me for it. But he was a man without any hope, really. He was predicting that the century would end with the triumph of world dictatorships, of Marxism, of the Dark Ages returning for about two centuries. Now, this is the way a great many people feel. This is the way our opponents feel. They are programmed for defeat. And we, in Christ, are supposed to be programmed for victory. This is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith. Rush, let me just make a comment about that. I was teaching on Sunday and uh, in a particular church and uh, I was teaching on faith, and one of the things that is, has uh, dramatically changed in my understanding of the of the essence of faith, uh, and I think is is having an effect in a number of places because a number of other men are are seeing this and preaching it, is that faith becomes powerful when it aligns itself uh, with God's overall purposes. Most people who preach faith today in the body of Christ direct that faith towards some kind of personal gain. And I was teaching out of Hebrews chapter 12, which uh, talks about how we need to strengthen our feet and make a straight path for them uh, if we've been trained by the discipline of God. And it occurred to me so very, very clearly 
that the way to get healed, that God heals us by faith when we begin to set our feet in the direction of freeing other people who are captivated by the enemy. Jesus in, in Isaiah 61 identified the central element of his ministry as one who has come to set at liberty the captives. And I believe that the faith that God is going to require of Christians uh, is going to go far beyond a faith for our finances or a faith for our health or a faith for God's blessing in any dimension, as important uh, as that is, that God is calling us into a faith which is going to make us liberators of the captives. I think the church needs to begin to see the world as uh, prisoners of war, and that our job is to go into that occupied territory to become Rambos, if you will, to go back into the jungle of, of religious humanism and into the jungle of uh, Christian pietism and into the jungle of all forms of unbelief and rescue those prisoners of war. And that is the faith that really is going to overcome the world. But it's not a, it's not a faith in what God is going to do for me. It's a faith in what God is going to do through me. Yes, very good. The, um, the the climate change that I think that uh, Dennis is referring to and, and Rush is referring to is um, is one of um, and it's hard to say without sounding like you're attacking or criticizing because that's not what's in my heart but the the otherworldly nature of Christianity. Um, and, and I could cite hundreds of illustrations as anyone else, but uh, the whole business, um, I, I jokingly referred to the other day to a, I was trying to learn how to use a CB radio, and I'm sort of intimidated with it. And I was, So the man on the other end of the CB radio said to me, what is your handle? Well, I didn't have a handle and so uh, he said well what is your occupation I said well I'm a I'm a minister oh he said uh, your handle is sky pilot <laughs> and uh, I I reacted deeply reacted because I realized the image out there is not one of liberation right. the image out there is not one of constructive engagement the image out there of the church is that that a pastor is a sky pilot. He is one who is now preparing people to fly through the sky. <laughs> and uh, it suddenly realized that the issues that we're dealing with is whether or not the church has honest, biblical, workable answers for a society that is destroying itself. One gave him a computer because he said, I've barely come up to the electric switch age. <laughs> well, uh, I was reminded in uh, what you said, Bob, of a sentence in Scripture, our Lord's statement. 
He that doeth my will shall know the doctrine. Now, that verse has been very much neglected, and I believe it's the answer to the age of humanism. Because humanism, as you well know, Dennis, began by stressing abstract knowledge. Not merely knowledge, but abstract knowledge is the key to everything. So that you were supposed to understand things before you moved. Yes. Well, if we waited until we understood things, we wouldn't use the electric light switch most of our lives, if ever, some of us. Right. Or ever drive a, an automobile because we don't fully understand the principles thereof. But our Lord tells us that it's not knowledge that is power, but doing His will. He that doeth, yes, he that doeth my will shall know the doctrine. And I think we have to stress this increasingly because it will mean a reversal of the whole order of priorities in the minds of Christians. They're dealing with abstractions. They're dealing with withdrawing from the world. They're dealing with just abstract learning as though it were the key to the power mm-hmm. and there being good humanists in doing that you know Rush uh, <clears throat> and Bob could speak to this with more church authority than I could but one of the things that I see going on all over this country is um, as the church is beginning to broaden its horizon of its responsibilities Um, And I don't even want to use the word into the political realm because uh, I think that the the, uh, definition of that realm as the political realm to some degree does a disservice to the church. I think what we're talking about is the prophetic realm, that is the realm that the church is supposed to impact with the commandments of Christ. But as the church is becoming more involved in that realm, it's having a very interesting effect on its eschatology. Um, you know, from my particular background, um, like Bob, I was initially exposed to a pre-tribulation uh, kind of a theology, and because my background is, is in the charismatic Pentecostal world, uh, you know, that is a very prevalent view uh, eschatologically. But the thing that's so exciting to me is and makes your point out of there John seven seventeen is that as the church and the leaders in the church are beginning to get their toe wet in the water of activism, it is unconsciously changing their theology and they're beginning to challenge so many of the assumptions. And the the interesting thing is that proves the Lord's words again and again is they didn't come to those changes through a theological position. They didn't study their way into a change, but rather the activism that is coming out of their life is now backing up and is changing their theology from an activist position. It's changing their heart, if you will, and as their heart is being changed, it's coming back up to their head and now they're intellectually challenging because of the activism 
their theological presuppositions. I hope that makes sense. Oh, yes. Wonderful sense. Well, um, the word minister, uh, when we talk about political, um, and I know this both inflames and encourages, <laughs> according to which position you're in. But uh, in Romans 13, he calls this um, government a minister of God. And uh, I've been thinking through um, the minister, which is civil, the minister, which is mercy, which is, has to do with social um, impacting a, a nation in the social realm, and the ministry of the word. And it seems to me that we have had the ministry of the word without the accompanying understanding that these are ministers. And, uh, it, uh, you know, when I saw the word minister, it really, uh, it, it, you know, being a biblicist, being a man who, who holds to the plain meaning of Scripture, uh, it was encouraging to me to see that word and how it affects all of society. And this has sort of been something I've been uh, reaching for. That's a good point, because in Scripture we have the ministry of government, and we are required to see it as a ministry, and the state has as much a duty to be under Christ as the church does. Yes. Then there is the ministry of education. And uh, the Levites in Deuteronomy 33.10 are told that this is their ministry, instruction. Then we have the ministry of mercy, of ministering to the needs of people, of being God's good Samaritans to all the world. Then there is the ministry of the word of grace, so there are many ministries, and we have a responsibility in all of them, so that if we restrict ourselves to one area and yes. say, this sums up the ministry, we have deformed the yes. Word of God. Yes. We, when we were trying to build churches, <clears throat> and uh, that was a, an adventure all into itself because of a number of crazy guys like me could not fit into what we found, or at least felt like we couldn't, and began to set out to try and build New Testament churches, which is a dangerous project at best. But one of the things that uh, we came to discover after a number of years is uh, we had a lot of very activist-oriented people. A lot of Jesus people uh, is what we began with, and people who had already made severe commitments when they were in the world they tuned in, turned on, and dropped out so that when they came into Christianity, they weren't trying to free themselves from materialism. They were, by and large, already free. And you have those kinds of people who get turned on for the Lord. All of them wanted to go into the quote-unquote ministry. But the only avenue that we made available during those years was to minister the Word because that's what a minister was. And, you know, you talk about growing some lopsided saints. You know, we, we uh, did our fair share in growing some lopsided saints. But when we began to see the kingdom of God 
we began to recognize that every life has got a ministry in it, and to be in full-time Christian service is to do best what God has called you to be, whatever the realm is. And that radically has changed our picture of what the church is. The concept of the kingdom and um, it becomes a superseding concept. It allows us to rise to see something of Christ's dominion over, um, over the earth, over civil government, over this thing. Now, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I'm sure the listeners to this understand that, but for many people, uh, when you talk about lopsided Christianity, for whatever reason, and I think, um, I don't know if I, uh, where I read it, but someone talked about surrendering to the professionals, that somehow the church surrendered economics, surrendered, um, you know, health, education, and welfare, surrendered everything. Uh, that is, the church's prerogative was all surrendered, and, and then we guard this. Now, it seems to me that the, the symptom or the syndrome is that if we now involve ourselves in this, we're going to neglect, quote, the preaching of the word. And I think this is a very real fear, a very real hurdle, a very real obstacle, if you will, to many men who would want to do that but are afraid to, to be involved in these other realms would take them away from being um, a, a careful, um, you know, um, uh, honest and in, 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 with integrity preaching of the word. Yes, uh, back in the 50s, when I first gave a series of lectures on the need of Christian schools, the necessity of starting them, a minister jumped up to interrupt me to say this would destroy the church and deflect them from Right. The ministry yes. of saving souls. That's the issue. And that's the kind of reaction that for about 20 years was quite common. Now you don't hear it anymore. I'm going to throw in something that if Otto were here, he would say because he has often said it. Uh, he has pointed out that in the early part of the Middle Ages when there was the great enthusiasm for cathedral building and for building some of the great Benedictine uh, churches. It was at that time when a relatively small congregation or uh, parish or community of not too many thousand would put up buildings that uh, we can't imagine, say, uh, Los Angeles erecting today. And it was because the church was such a, a total ministry, healing. The hospitals were all a part of the ministry of the church. <laughs> it had something to say about man's economic life. 
It provided uh, a place for the poor. It took care of all the charity in the community. It took care of travelers. It was the Good Samaritan to all who came and went. In a hundred and one ways, it was a ministry. And as a result, it was so necessary that people were ready to go and work long hours every week to make sure that the church was built. It was because it was a necessity for their life. It ministered to every aspect of their lives. And we have to recapture that vision and develop it further. And I think we're going to in the days ahead. I see it coming already. You're talking about authentic Christianity. You're talking about people. I don't want to sound preachy. One of the things that is uh, fire in my bones is uh, I think much of the gospel in the West, or certainly in the United States, is fundamentally flawed in the way that it's preached in as much as it preaches to the self-interest of humanity. We present Jesus uh, as coming down to die for us and tried to save us and of course I believe in all that I've got no unorthodox convictions about that but man is not the center of God's eye the Bible doesn't teach that that's a humanistic thought and it permeates modern Christianity the center of God's eye is Jesus Christ and Paul went at great lengths in the book of Colossians to show that in Christ all things are preeminent and summed up and until we preach the preeminence of Christ we're going to have a kind of Christianity where man's comfort is the main event of what he looks to God for and you're not going to have the kind of workers that we saw in those days that you just alluded to until we see that the church is a place worthy of expending our energy for people other than ourselves. That's the great problem in American churchianity is that we've got a self-centered gospel instead of a Christ-centered gospel. Well, this didn't happen um, accidentally. Um, You know, what are the events that separated what I would call evangelical Christianity. That's my basic background, is uh, evangelical Christianity. How did it get so separated from the... uh, It seems like... Now I'm speaking simply from my background. I'm not there now philosophically, nor am I there theologically, but my journey has been to find how did I get separated so far from uh, involvement in life as being an evangelical? How did I get so separated from involvement in life? I think it was because about 1660, the church began to withdraw from the world and to say that our ministry is to the inner man, not to the whole world. 
and they began to surrender the crown rights of Christ. I think the Lord now is working a great restoration, preparing his church to conquer all things as humanism begins to fall apart. I know that uh, in the late 70s it was a very marvelous week for me when I had two telephone calls from people I had never heard of and I don't remember their names now. They called and it was with some difficulty that they had located my whereabouts. Uh, they called because they said they had been accused of being my followers and they had never heard of me. Uh, what had led to that? Well, they were taking the whole of the Bible very literally and seriously and applying it and feeling a duty to go out and conquer everything for Christ. Well, that was one of the high moments for me because what it told me was that the Holy Spirit is at work and if he's working in two people like that he's working all over the world to arouse people to bring them back to his word to read it with different eyes so that they yes. see what was intended there I have this little uh, sheet of paper here, a uh, very wonderful man, a Catholic priest who's been by here to Vallecito. I've seen him twice. And uh, the same kind of uh, leading of the Spirit brought him to me because he found he was being led in the same paths. And this was an insert in his bulletin for this past Christmas, and he sent it to me, feeling that I would enjoy it. It's titled, My Christmas Wish, and I'll just read two lines. I wish for the restoration of all things in Christ. A world free from sin, a world in which God is enthroned rather than man. Now that's marvelous. And that's happening all over the world. Mm. So that uh, the Lord is preparing people for a mighty action in the days ahead. Amen. You should tell um, our readers about the group that you met um, that had never heard of Dr. Rushton oh, as well. This is funny. <clears throat> we had a meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, recently, Rush. And uh, it was with some major church leaders uh, in some of the realms that we we are involved in. These are men that have churches of six, seven, eight thousand uh, believers every Sunday. These are you know large churches, and they have been preaching uh, Christian Reconstruction from their perspective, and preaching uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God, and they've never heard of your books. And uh, or in some of the other major uh, Christian reconstructions, and we were just aghast because we said, "How in the world 
could they be, have been preaching these things and you know involvement in a holistic society and not have been exposed to your literature so they asked me has he written any books <laughs> at which point I said if, you know if you spent the rest of your life reading you wouldn't get through all of them so uh, we're excited to be here with you and be able to take some of your reading materials back and uh, it's going to go into a network of you know a hundred thousand believers uh, in this country who are already primed by the Spirit of God for Christian Reconstruction uh, and who as your your literature and your research comes into their hands uh, you can expect that the army is going to be greatly strengthened the um, I, I, I think sometime in word pictures and um, one of the things I saw, I think I saw, was that for some time I always saw truth coming like through a spigot. It was sort of like in this man or another man or a certain place at a time of a visitation or something that the Lord was restoring. And what uh, Rush was saying uh, about these phone calls I think it's uh, worth making a very, very uh, clear point on. It seems to me that the concept of reconstruction and the, the authority of Christ in every realm of life is not coming through a spigot right now, but rather it's coming like rain. Mm -hmm. It's like the rain of the Holy Spirit. Every nation every place where I have been, every situation. I went to a group of ministers um, which I no more expected to hear uh, any of these things and I, I, I honestly went with some reluctance because I thought, oh well, you know, sometimes you feel like you'd be better off if you stayed home. And uh, so I went with reluctance and the first speaker stood up and and um, opened his concept of what the Lord had showed him about his city. And he laid out one, two, three, four, five, the most marvelous insight of what the, what the Holy Spirit had been showing him. Now, I'm confident that he had been touched and influenced by many things, but there is a rain. There is a rain of the Holy Spirit that's coming over the whole body of Christ, speaking to us about the triumph of Jesus Christ in the time-space world. Yeah. Well, I believe that uh, the next couple of decades are going to be the most dramatic in world history for two reasons. One, we're going to see the fearful, the ugly, the horrifying collapse of the present world order. Mm -hmm. It isn't going to be pleasant to live through. But at the same time, we're going to see the emergence of Christ's people as a force as never before in history. Yes. And I think the humanists are already fearful. A year or two ago, I recall the hope expressed by one writer when he was surveying the 
evangelical reawakening and its impact on the political scene. He commented that even as the hippies had come and gone, so too would this uh, evangelical resurgence come and go. He wishes. (laughs) He wishes. (laughs) I think he's going to be surprised at what's developing. He ain't seen nothing yet. No. (laughs) Not if you have anything to do about it, nor nor Bob. (laughs) I was in a convention in in another country here a couple of years ago and just picking up on that. And it was closed with a song that a brother had written called We're Gonna Win. Mm-hmm. And uh, we sang that song probably half a dozen times. Uh, it was a rather large convention, and the faith that swept through that people, people began to weep as they were being healed of their own pessimism and unbelief. And about the fourth time we sang, we're going to win, uh, I mean, you could feel a release in God in those people. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing everywhere. Rush, you and I were at a meeting here not too long ago in Canada, where we saw people with standing ovations and shouting and clapping because, as Bob pointed out, their expectations are being challenged and they're being hit by faith. They're beginning to actually believe that Christ is the victor and that Christ has all power on heaven and on earth. And we've, we've said that in our sermons. We've said it in our creeds. But now our hearts are beginning to resonate with that sound. The note of of victory must never turn to triumphalism. There is a triumphalism which is neither biblical nor is it right. And I'm always cautious to you know for our listeners and others who hear us that while we are trying to compensate for the tremendous negativism and the whole teaching on apostasy and you can't polish brass on the titanic and all such things and i was raised on them Um, presently my own heart reaches out to men who are trying to find their way out of that by saying to them very clearly um, as uh, as Rush said just a moment ago there is coming uh, a fearful and I think um, most cataclysmic implosion of a humanistic society um, so when we talk of, of a victorious eschatology, I think it's important for everyone to hear that there is not some um, emotional or even some triumphalistic uh, kind of mentality at this table, nor is there among the Reconstructionists that I know that there is a very sober, uh, measured, um, calculating, um, uh, putting myself into uh, the the events and the philosophy and the history of what is happening by virtue of the fact that my confidence is not in me and who I am or in this, you know, some immediacy, but in a long-term triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have about four minutes left. Is there something you'd like to say briefly, Dennis and Bob? Let's start with you, Dennis. Well, I'd just like to encourage those that uh, have listened to us here in this conversation to uh, really pray, because prayer is what really is going to release and break loose the faith in God's people. We have to, using your phrase, we have to have a new way to read the Bible. We need a new set of eyes by which we understand Scripture. And that comes by faith. And uh, i just like to encourage all of us, and I know that the Lord is encouraging me to pray more and pray more diligently for the release of faith in God's Word in God's people. Well, my summary would simply be that that we would um, seek the Lord for a new expectancy. I see a difference between expectancy and faith. I can believe a thing and not expect it. Mm. I would like for us to begin to expect God to give us answers in political and economic realms. I'm very grateful to you for your stress on expectancy. When I was a boy on the farm, the uh, old expression, I can't remember it exactly, but the gist of it was this. It was wrong to go to a prayer meeting praying for rain unless you carried an umbrella with you. Yes. Expectancy. And uh, farmers, it was a farming community, knew what that meant. Yes. You didn't just pray and as a wish. You prayed to a God who hears and answers. And so you went to the prayer meeting with an umbrella. Mm. Well, I think we'd better uh, have that kind of praying, yes. praying with expectancy. Our time is up. We're very happy to have been able to share our thinking with you. And we pray that you, day by day, will live in terms of this expectancy, that Christ is the victory. And we share in his victory as well as in the work that he has set out for the church to do. God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.